This morning, uh, we're continuing our series in Deuteronomy. We're almost finished with Moses' second sermon. I've noticed something, and that is that if you want to make a conversation awkward these days, and I love doing that, <laughs> the face that you just made, Carrie, was hilarious. <laughs> uh, is uh, injecting the words social justice. Any conversation you just... You just created two groups of warring factions with social justice. Uh, there's this great book that I want to just throw out real quick. It's a book by Scott McKnight called Kingdom Conspiracy. And in Kingdom Conspiracy, he opens up with something he's observing in his own experiences in ministry. And that there seems to be two kinds of Christians right now. Because the social justice thing isn't just Democrats and Republicans and CNN and Fox and whatever. Uh, but rather seems to be in, in infusing into the church two kinds of Christians. The first is called the pleated pants Christians. That old-timey religion where it's get people saved and get them holy. And that's what the church is about. By the same token, you kind of have these, this other group of Christians. We we'll call them the skinny jeans Christians. And the skinny jeans Christians, they're really interested in things like creation care. Uh, immigration issues, the, the plight of the poor, the widow, the orphan. And, and you have these two Christians. Uh, these are both famous ministers, if you didn't know that. But you have these two groups of Christians that, that, that are now, we're Christians are taking up sides, and we're beginning to take paw shots at one another. And, and the, problem, the problem is real because you have Jesus in the Bible, and Jesus says things like, repent or perish. And then Jesus says things like, do not judge, lest you be judged. And we're sort of taking besides, like, which one is it? What are we doing with the lights? Oh, man, that's going to, like, give me a headache. Lightning to the rescue. And so we have this, these, these two groups of people, and we're, we're, we seem to be taking up sides on these, on these issues. And uh, we get to pick which kind of Jesus do you want. Do you want the Jesus that's repenting and perishing, or do you want the Jesus who's you know, forgiving everyone and making everyone feel, feel good? And, uh, of course, you all know that that is not an accurate picture of Jesus, right? Jesus is both and. and this is one of the problems with proof texting. We go to the Bible to find the line that we want from the Bible to support or bolster our presuppositions, what we already believe. And really what we should be looking for as we engage Scripture is reading the entire gambit of Scripture and, and allowing Scripture to speak to us about how to live our lives. Deuteronomy has been one of the places that we've gone again and again. In fact, last week uh, we talked a lot about justice. It was written into the Deuteronomic I can't say that well. Code. And we're going to go back there again. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to um, Deuteronomy 24. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's all right. Just grab one just in the pew in front of you, just like I've got page 166. It's the first column. And it has a title, a little subheading that the editors who, who printed this Bible wanted to help you out. And so they gave you, uh, again, just like we had last week, miscellaneous laws. Last week we had various laws. This week we have miscellaneous laws. Again, my point is going to be today that these laws are, are not miscellaneous in the sense that it's just a bag of jelly beans and you're just kind of pulling out the ones that you want and leaving behind the ones that you don't. But rather these all are connected. And they're all connected because they all talk about justice. In fact, today we're going to talk about three elements of justice because 
I figured why just offend one group of you when I could offend all of you. We'll talk about war, we'll talk about money, and we'll talk about immigration. Whew. So um, I will not be meeting you at the front as you leave. Just let y'all go. Be back here, safe and sound. I really love this first verse, and, and I think this verse here in chapter 24, verse 5, is something that you would probably read and just pass over really quickly, but I, I think it's cool. And it says this, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. The word of the Lord. No, no newly married men here, I guess. No one said thanks be to God. Soon to be, right? We've got a couple of soon to be in here. Very good. Yeah, I love this law. And I think if you were reading this at home, you might just pass right over and say, okay, well, this doesn't apply to me. But again, remember, I've pressed hard on this, that just because the text doesn't seem to apply to you specifically, after all, if you are in the military, the United States military, I assume, doesn't care a whole lot about what Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5 has to say about whether you do or do not go into your, your period of service. In fact, there is a little, little bit of a distance here as well, because what we have is that this is a text that's speaking to a militia-type army. This isn't a standing army, but we'll get into that. But it's not just about the practices, but about what does this teach us about the world that God has made? And what does it teach us about how we fit into that world? And then from these two priorities, we get the flow of how we're to live our lives. And so what does this teach us, if we kind of back it up, what does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about the people that he's trying to make? Well, it teaches us some really important things. The first thing is this, God does not need a big army. I mean, think about this. Canada, (laughs) I can't even finish it. China, I don't know, whoever's got the bigger army, let's say China, China, China's like, they're going to go to war, they're going to go to war, and the numbers are bigger in China vis-a-vis the military here. And as these escalationing tensions happen, as the war clouds begin to Form And as these two bodies, these two nations begin to go to war, uh, the American military puts out this message. Hey, listen, if y'all just got married, sit this one out. That's a dumb law. Right? I mean, that, that's like, you know, what? Young guys, young gals, this is the first like, 10, 15, 20% of your military. You just wrote them off. In fact, if we back up to chapter 20, there's more laws about uh, the military there and it says in that text if anyone is scared send them home well i'm a coward through and through so i'm going home right i mean what are you going to lose like 30 40 50 percent of your military like god is is just utterly unconcerned with the numbers that are coming at israel and the numbers he has going against that army, it tells us something about who God is. So God can make a law that says, listen, your home is your first priority. We can take care of these incidental things like an invasion. Just settle on that for a second. Your home is your first priority. We can take care of incidental things like an invasion. I don't need you to show up and save Israel. I'm here for that. And that's a, that's a powerful thing. 
It tells us something more about the people that God is trying to create. He is not creating a warrior people. He is not creating a people who are awesome at war. In fact, if you look at what has transpired in in the first few books of the Bible, because we're in the the fifth one here, if you look at the first, God is building a priestly nation. This is echoed again way in the back of your Bible, closer to where we stand and after Jesus, in which Peter, who followed Jesus, was one of his disciples, says, and God is continuing to make a priestly people. Not a warrior people, a priestly people. People who declare the word of God into the world and invite people to respond to it. So God doesn't need them doesn't need a big army because they're not going to people be a people who are constantly building a greater empire. And this also tells us again, as I've already kind of alluded to, that God fights for them. And so it doesn't matter how many people that are coming to invade Israel, he can do it with 300 people. He doesn't need 20,000. That's a, that's a really powerful message, isn't it? Even if we spiritualize that for a second, everyone in here is kind of, you're wrestling with something, I'm wrestling with something. We all have issues. At work, at home, you're facing something that just seems absolutely and completely insurmountable. There is no way I can defeat this enemy. There is no way I can win this victory. And in God's mind, that battle is incidental. He can give you any victory he wants. He can overcome any foe, regardless of number, of size, of might, of money. None of that, none of that matters to God. We see that in this one, this one line that we might just pass over quickly. How can God send people home or, or not have them come to the battle? Because God doesn't need them. That's a powerful, powerful message here. We see another thing here, and that is the importance of marriage. The importance of marriage, the holiness of marriage. In fact, why does God say, stay home with your wife and not go to war and protect your nation? Because that home is the most important of those two priorities for God. Marriage is is on the decline. And I was reading in the Wall Street Journal this week, marriage is on the decline. It's on the decline because more people are having sex, obviously, outside of marriage. This is not a surprise to anybody. What should be uh, troubling to you, if you have daughters as I do, is the world in which they're being raised in, to see this as normative. I had this opportunity recently to ride in a car three hours up north with a friend. I, I, I know him just, just a little bit. We went to college together, but we never sat in a car for three hours together. So we're in a car for three hours together. And I said, tell me your story. And he said, oh, it's boring. You don't want to hear it. You don't want to hear it. And I said, well, I, well I'll be the judge of that. We got three hours to kill. <laughs> you know, so I don't know, throw some aliens in there or something. Spruce it up. And so he begins to tell me the story, the story of his life, how he grew up in a small town, how he was raised around Christians who cared about him and went to VBS and went to Bible school, and they would, they would have baptisms sometimes, and they would, just, they would just make a phone call, they'd call everybody, and the church would gather on some random night of the week to, to, to do a baptism, and he'd go to camp, and then he went to Bible college, and he went through Bible college and felt the call to ministry and decided to go into ministry, and he got married, and he has kids, and he said, isn't that, I mean, are you, done, are you tired of this story yet? And I was like, are you kidding me? That is a beautiful story. That's a gorgeous story. Why are we so enthralled with stories of like people who have totally blown everything and continue to do it? 
Why do we love scandal so much? Scandal ruins his lives. It ruins families. It ruins children. It ruins people. We should strive, and here's my, here's my first point. Actually, that's my third point. Here's my concluding thought. You should do this. Strive to live a boring life. Strive to live. I want my girls one day, somebody say, man, tell me about your life. I want them to not have a story of chaos. I want them to look back at their lives and say, my mom and dad loved me, and we went to church all the time, and we, we, we talked about God, and, and I love God, and I went to college, and I got married, and we had kids, and we continued. That's, that's stability. That's beauty. And all of the junk that you see on even the most tame of these TV shows of modern families and whatever, I don't, I don't know what they are, so I'm showing my ignorance here, but all of that is garbage. It is lies. It destroys people. The beauty is there. And all of the statistics we have bear it out. Why in the world are we letting people tell us that there's something other than the truth? So, strive to live a boring life. There's a second piece of marriage advice here. And that is in the footnote. So if you're using the Bible that I'm using, uh, what they have done is sometimes you can translate things a couple of different ways because of the way the Hebrew, I'm boring you already. <laughs> the Hebrew words work, you can kind of translate them different ways. And so you kind of have to choose one translation or another. This, this text, the English Standard Version, they chose to say, uh, he shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife. I actually think that's the worst of the two texts or translations. The better one is actually in your footnotes. To go home, he's to stay there for a year to make happy his wife. That's the literal that's right, ladies. Make happy your wife. That's good news. It's a good word. There is so much here in just one little verse that seems so completely separated, so completely different from us, so completely unrelated to you, and yet it's all for you. There's so much that is happening here that we need to move on and talk about money. So let's talk about money. No one's ever been offended by money and preachers who talk about them. Look at verse 6. Now, there, there, there are several sections here. We've got verse 6 and then verses 10 through 13. And then, uh, then it kind of jumps in verses 17 through 18. These all refer to loans. And the first verse there, verse 6, says this. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge. For that would be taking a life in pledge. And so what we have here, here's your, here's your mill, right? And this is your upper millstone, and you're going to put your grain or your corn or whatever in here, and you're going to roll this bad boy around, crush it down, and make flour out of it. Everybody with me? Pretty simple. So you are, uh, you are in need of food, and so you borrow food, because when, we talk, when it talks about borrowing here, it's not like talking like, no one's giving you, it's not like a home equity loan or something like that. They didn't, their economy didn't work the way that our economies work. They're probably loaning either food or seed or livestock. And they're loaning this to you to kind of give you a little boost so that you can make it through to the next whatever. So what happens here if, if somebody loans you some seed, but they take the, the millstone 
you can't crush it and you can't make bread, which is to take your life. That is, there's a person who has enough money that they're set. And there's a person who needs some help. And that person has a temptation. And that temptation is to take advantage of their better opportunity. And God says in Israel, we don't do that here. The the next one is like it in verses 10 through 13. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect the pledge. Why? This is just common sense, everybody. You walk in, and instead of just taking the cloak of somebody, you might take their family treasure, their china, or whatever it is that people keep in their houses that are valuable. My books. You come in, you start taking books off the shelf, and you get a little panicky. You stay outside. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you are to make a loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge, which sounds weird, <laughs> right? So let me explain that a little bit. A pledge, what would have been taken from them, is a, is a coat or a cloak that would have functioned also as their blanket for the night. And so one of the things that the person who is wealthy and well-off and can kind of do whatever he or she wants can do to the poor person is, I will give you this loan of livestock, but I need proof that you're going to pay me back, so you give me your coat, which is also a blanket, right? They didn't have, you know, some of you guys have walk-in closets that are just like J.C. Penney's or whatever, wherever people, the Gap, whatever it is. And th- this was not the case for them. They would have had just one or maybe two pairs of changes of clothing, but the outer coat, the cloak, the pledge would have been what you take. And so if you take that from somebody and you keep it and you sleep it, you use their blanket, essentially. You use their blanket. And what does God say? That is repugnant to me. It is absolutely repugnant to me to see a person who is in a position to help someone else use that position to disadvantage that person, that sin. In Israel, this is not, this is not to happen. Verse 17. Let's jump down there. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner. So this is the immigration bit. Immigration today works different than then as well, and so we have to tread lightly. But the idea of somebody from another country, Moab, Ammon, Assyria, uh, Syria, wherever, Egypt, they, they're, they're in the Israelite territory. You shall not pervert justice due to that sojourner or to the fatherless or take the widow's garment in the pledge. So again, you've got that same idea. That widow, she needs that blanket, that thing to keep her warm. You can't take that. And so you need to remember this, that you once were a slave in Egypt. You were once the disadvantaged. You were the one who needed the help. And God stepped into reality and into time, and of his own goodness and his own grace, he brought you up. And how dare you, how dare you take advantage of somebody who is in need? Jesus uses the same principle, isn't it, when he tells the story of the man who is forgiven like $10 million and can never pay it back in his whole life. He can never pay this money back, and yet the king forgives him this massive debt. And what does that guy do? He goes out immediately and finds this guy who owes him a bunch of money, a couple, ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. And he says, give me the money you owe me. And the king is enraged. Why is the king enraged? Because the king has shown grace, and he expects his servants, his subjects, to show grace as well. If you are a son or daughter of the king, 
and you have received the grace of the king, then you had best show it as well. Because God hears the cry of the oppressed. God hears the cry of those who are pushed down. He hears the cry of those who hurt. And so God hates things like predatory lending. So we see here, it's not to happen between, it's not to happen in Israel. We might take some application to this, some light application to this, and it reminded me of Jesus. Because what is happening here, I can't get there fast enough. No, no, anyway. The whole uh, practices, identity, and worldview bit is that this is talking about practices, but it tells us something about identity and about the world we live in, about who we are to be as people. And Jesus has this great line, which I think we forget in late capitalistic modernity where we can go to Best Buy and just max out cards. Eric Dush. No, I've done the same thing. <laughs> where we, have so, we have so much more than any people in any time in any history, right? There's so much that's going on, so many possessions. And Jesus has a word to speak in a consumeristic culture where we, we, get, we get a drug fix, essentially, from going to the mall or going onto Amazon and buying stuff. And Jesus says this. He says, take care and be on your guard against covetousness. That's an old word. We don't use it anymore because it's horrible and we're all guilty of it. It means don't want more. Stop wanting more. Be on your guard against wanting more because your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, your bank accounts, your cars, your home, your 401k, whatever you want to try to say, well, this isn't what Jesus is talking about. No, that's what Jesus is talking about. We're to be a people who are not consumed with constantly wanting more and more. We are to be the people who are content. And that has never been a harder word, which is why I'm not going to greet you at the front door as we exit. All right, let's talk about immigration. I can't possibly do wrong there, right? There we go. Immigration. All right, let's look at these verses. Verses 14, so there's two kind of two other laws here. The first one is 14 through 15. The second one is 19 through 22. And again, these all have to do with the idea that somebody from Egypt happened into the land of, 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 of Israel. Um, maybe they're just passing through. Maybe times were tough and they, they went there to, to, to try to survive, whatever. This is the kind of thing that God has to say. He says, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. Whether he is one of your brothers or a sojourner, somebody who has traveled in, who are in your land and in your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day. You can't withhold it. Because obviously you're in the position as the, as the boss, you're in the good position and the worker's in the disadvantaged position. You are not allowed to keep and hold on to that and, and di- divvy it out whenever you want or however, however that goes. You're to give it the same day before the sun sets, lest he, and this is important, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. God hears the cry of the poor, those who are oppressed. Verses 19 through 22. 
When you reap your harvest and you feel them, this expands, this expands on a previous law, just as a side note. There's a previous law in Leviticus that talks about uh, planting fields. And when you plant your fields, you're to leave those edges of your field for the poor. You're not to take everything and you're not to go two or three times over your field. You go over it once and harvest what you can and then everything else is for the poor in the land. So here we go. When you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back for it. It shall be for the sojourner, uh, the orphan, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all your work. Which is, is you can see the, 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 the connection. The first one is, don't let those who are poor oppressed cry out, because they cry out against you, I will hear, and the sort of a negative thing is going to happen to you. But in this, we have a positive command. Listen, if you care about the things God cares about, then God will bless you with richness. He'll make sure that your needs are met. So, he will bless you in all the work of your hands. Verse 20. When you beat your olive trees, do not go over them again. Leave it for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. When you gather grapes from your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. So don't strip everything down, but leave it for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. Remember, remember that you were slaves. Now, you and I were never slaves in Egypt, and so that line probably doesn't pack that mighty gut punch that it packed to them. But you and I were slaves to sin. We were slaves to death. And that's a mightier oppressor than Egypt. And we've been freed from that. We've been set free from these kinds of things. And so there's some assumptions here in terms of the practices. I am not, I don't own a vineyard and I don't own olive trees. (laughs) Right, So this text is really difficult for me because I don't employ people, as it were. I don't have anyone squatting on my property who's from Egypt. There's a lot of things that are difficult. But it reveals to us some of the priorities that are emerging out of this, some of that worldview, some of that, uh, some of that identity in some of those practices. And the, I would say the worldview I see emerging from this text or these texts is this, that this land, this money, this place, this job, this whatever, it does not belong to you. It belongs to God. That anything that you have been given, you have been given. It's all God's. I remember growing up in church and people saying that. And then I asked to borrow their car and I found out we, we got limits on this, don't we? And, and I'm not saying there shouldn't be any limits, but, but this is an important idea that I think evokes quite a bit of hypocrisy amongst Christians. We see all these texts, and we wrestle with what they mean, and we usually try to find the easy way out. My suggestion to you is stop finding easy ways out. The land is not yours. It's God's. When God placed them in the garden, he didn't say, there it is, strip it bare, do whatever you want with it. He said, tend This verdant, beautiful, wonderful place. Have relationship with it that is is reflective of the relationship you have with me. And that is a relationship of grace. Grace is what should mark us and set us apart. So, let's let's bring this to kind of a conclusion We've had a lot of different laws. You see a lot of different sabbatarians. We could have spent probably a sermon series on each one of these to think through and pull through what they might be, what they might mean. I think on the very 
the very front end, we have to see that there's a worldview that's going on. It's plugging into the identity of how we fit into the world as the people of God. And then we come to these practices. And this is the difficult place, as we've talked about, within Deuteronomy to try to make sense of. Because most of what we've read here today is not one-to-one applicable to your life. And yet there's so much richness in the world that we now experience and understand and how we're to plug into that world. So let me try to do some of that work. Worldview. First, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He has made a people who love one another and who by their life together shine forth his grace. That is true of the Old Testament people of Israel and that is true of the New Testament people of God in Jesus Christ. The mission of God has not changed. The way that God redeems people and who he redeems has simply expanded. God has made the world, it is his, he's placed us in it to be a shining light of grace. Can everybody agree to that? There's light agreement, you're afraid of what comes next. (laughs) Next, you are that people. That's your identity. Your identity is first, foremost, and I would argue even only plugged into this one reality that you are a son and daughter of Of God, if you're a Christian here today. If you're not a Christian here today, man, you ought to be. Because that is the place to be if you want to experience the fullness of grace. And if you want to live a life that is challenging, because all the stuff that we just read, man, that's hard work. It is hard not to be covetous. Google is working full time to make me want so much stuff. And I fail, because I, I see it, I'm like, Google, you know me. Like, you just, I didn't know that was a thing, but I must have this thing. You know, we, we're so disconnected from the land. We're so, I mean, there, there's so much that is happening in this text that is, that is hard. I was going to make, make my wife happy joke, but I won't. <laughs> There's a lot of hard stuff here. I, I'm never going to say to you being a Christian is an easy thing. No, if you, if you want an easy life, uh, go get on Google and buy something, right? That's way easier. The Christian life is for those who really see a world that is possible. Not a world that we can make, but a world that God can make. And that God has broken into this world Because God so loved the world that he wants to create a people who believe like he believes. Who love like he loves. Not just in word, but in deed. As Jesus says this, they will know you are my followers because they will look at the church there on Oakland Drive. And they will say, look at how these people share with one another without demanding repayment. Look at how they love and sacrifice for one another. Even though they aren't bound by blood or by any other oath than just taking communion every Sunday. Look at that. It's incredible. This is for people who can see that vision and want to grab a hold of it. Because I want to see it. And so here's my stab at some practices that I think emerge from these texts. All right, These are debatable. Take them home. Debate them. Not with me because I won't be up there. But... Here we go. It's a, it's a big, long list. Have faith. If God didn't need an army 3,000 years ago, I don't think he needs an army today. Whatever it is that you're facing, you can face it. 
I know this is like almost trite, and I know there's like every Christian movie ever, every cheesy Christian movie ever made is made. I watched Facing the Giants this week for like the 20th time. I don't even like football. It's the cheesiest movie ever made. But I love that message because as cheesy as it is, it's true. God has never rescued me except for when I am in my most desperate spot and then he always rescues me. We'll do the same for you. The second is this. Enjoy marriage. Some of y'all are miserable, miserable cusses. Make your wives happy. Is it that hard? Take the trash out. No. <laughs> Some people we can't help. I... The third is this, controversy. The unmarried should not undress. Except for, you know, hygiene. <laughs> and sexual connotations. Marriage. Uh, interest is bad. Uh, on so many levels, like that's, that's, a whole, that's a whole discussion, but... One of the things I think about here is the way in which Christians in the New Testament sold their property. They had excess. They didn't need it. And they sold it and they gave it to the other Christians in the community who needed it. I love that. I'd love to see that. In fact, I have seen that many times here at this church, which is one of the many reasons why I love you all. And this is an amazing place to be. Five. We need to think about how our economic practices affect other people. Listen, waitresses don't make good money. If you go out to eat today and you're a stingy person in a tie, they know you're a Christian for crying out loud. Think about how the things that you do affect other people. Don't be always thinking, how does this advantage me? How can I get more out of the situation? How can I get more out of this deal? Which... Brings us to the next thing. You know, be true to your word, even if it disadvantages you. So that people know that you're honest because your good deeds are supposed to shine forth Jesus Christ. And if they think you're stingy or you're a trickster, believe, believe me, they think Jesus is too. I was thinking of this, I was thinking of this story I, I have to tell. When this guy came into Best Buy, on a Sunday, this is back when I was working up at Best Buy, and he comes in on a Sunday, was this, I don't remember what it was, it was like the first thing, it was early in the morning, and he comes in, and so the tech department's here, I'm back there turning on TVs, and he comes in, and he goes, does anybody work here? I was like, turning on TVs, I was like, I don't. <laughs> and what broke my heart was not how much I didn't like that guy. <laughs> but then when he opened his wallet to pay, he had a cross in it. Now, it didn't affect me because I know Christians can suck. But I worked with people who were convinced all Christians suck. And because they think that, they think our faith is garbage. Let someone take advantage of you. The gospel's worth it. Value the stranger. The outsider, the foreigner, the poor, the widow, the orphan. Do not be so afraid. I mean, that's, that's what I get out of all these things. All these texts are just shocking and how much God is saying, you know, I have got you. 
You don't need to withhold money from the person who works for you. You don't have to worry about running off to fight this war. I've got you. I've got you. There's this incredible story in the, uh, in the book of Judges. I love the Old Testament, if you haven't already told that. We've been talking for like 26,000 weeks about Deuteronomy. But I love the Old Testament because it's all car chases and shootouts and laws like this. I had to say testicles last week. That was cool. <laughs> the Old Testament's awesome. And there's this great story in the Old Testament about how God's people were being oppressed by the Midianites. And they were mighty. They were a warrior nation. Israel is a priestly nation. And priests get like dirt kicked in their face while they read theology at the beach. And that's what was going on for years and years and years. Of course, the text is careful to tell us that the reason this happened was because the people had stopped being faithful to the covenant. They allowed sin to enter their lives. They stopped following what God had told them. They stopped paying attention to their practices. They stopped paying attention to who they were. And they stopped paying attention to the world that God made around them. And they began to be selfish and inwardly focused. And God said, fine, if you think you can control this, do this on your own, you're on your own. And quickly Israel realized, yeah, we can't do that on our own. And they cried out to God, and God in his mercy steps in, and he picks a coward out of the mix whose name is Gideon. And Gideon, through some misadventures, amasses an army to go and fight the Midianites. And his army is not that great. It's like, it's like Canada versus China, like not great. Poor Canada. I pick on them a lot. I nothing against them, but... And God says, to the, God says to Gideon first, he says, hey, listen, you got way too many people. You got way too many people. We need to cut this down. Anybody who's scared, send them home. Half the army goes away. And he does this again and again. In fact, one of the more ridiculous things, he says, hey, send, send, everyone, send everyone down to that pool down there and have them drink. Y'all remember the story? Drink from this water and whoever, like, pulls it up and drinks it out of their hand like a civilized person and the other people who are just shoving their face in the water like dogs send the majority home and, and, and God winnows this down so that, so that Gideon can free the Israelites with a whopping 300 soldiers I don't know if you could defeat Midian with 300 Conans like that's nothing and God says it's because I didn't need 300 I could have done it with 3 And if that's true from beginning to end of the scriptures, and if your life like mine, if you're here today and you're a believer, if your life like mine bears that truth out, why are we so afraid? Why are we so hesitant? In fact, one of the things I pull from this this text is that, listen, if it doesn't cost you something, if you're not stepping out in faith, then maybe that thing's not even worth doing. We should be ridiculous people. People who the world looks at and says, that's... That's dumb. Why would you ever do that? Why would you ever love that much? Why would you ever give that much? Why would you ever sacrifice that much? Why? Because we have a God of infinite grace and resources. He has no need. And he is your God. So I call you, if you are a Christian here today, to live that truth. And if you're not a Christian here today, I invite you to experience that truth. And we'll have a line of other people out there 
who can tell you how God has performed in their life over and over again salvation. Because we have a God that saves. Let's stand as we sing praise to him.